It is a good Lord's Day uh, for me. It's a joy to be here with you. We sang earlier one of the lines about the Lord being the wellspring of our souls. Did you remember that line? That, that the Lord is the wellspring of our souls. That comes from John chapter 7. Verses 37 through 39 that talks about when Christ ascends to heaven, he will give us the Holy Spirit and there will be springs of life flowing from us. And so one of the reasons it's a joy to be here on Sundays with you, and this Sunday in particular that I, I feel it, is that when we're gathered, we're thinking about God's word, we're praying, we're singing, we're just seeing each other's faces, springs of life from the Lord are flowing from us to each other. And so there's a flood of life here from the Lord, from heaven. And it's wonderful to just be in your presence, in that, in that presence of that, wells, of that spring of life flowing today. So, um, and all that happens because, it's because of what happened that very first Lord's Day. On that very first Lord's Day, that very first Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. He died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. And so saints gather all around the world on this day to remember and celebrate and refresh their faith in our risen Lord Jesus. So it's a happy Lord's Day indeed. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 26 into chapter 2 verse 13. Okay, so James 1, 26, the last two verses of chapter 1 going into chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, there's a hardcover, a black hardcover Bible in the chair in front, under the chair in front of you. You can grab that Bible out and turn to page 1071, going into page 1072, and you'll find the verses right there. When we say James 1, 26, when I say 1, that's the chapter number, the big number, and 26 is the small number. So James 1, verse 26, and then we're going to go to chapter 2, all the way to verse 13, okay? James 1, 26 to chapter 2, verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in, in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is, is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father in heaven, we are asking again as we go to the book of James, we're asking for wisdom. 
Not wisdom from the earth, not demonic wisdom, not fleshly wisdom. We're asking for heavenly wisdom. We're asking for spiritual wisdom. We're asking for divine wisdom. We're asking for your wisdom, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us this wisdom from above. Help us to see what it means to have true religion. Convict us of sin. Show us, like we learned last week, Lord, show us even now very in specific ways how to be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Help us to receive your word, to be faithful hearers and faithful doers of your word. And may we in all of this know and treasure the word made flesh, Jesus, our Messiah. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we need your help now. Help me to preach. Help all of us to meditate and be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, that we might grow in your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What is your religion? What is your religion? Now, I know if, you're, if we're coming here to a Sunday gathering like this, most of you would say Christian. But not all of you who come to a Sunday gathering like this every Sunday, not all of you are Christians. There are people of different religions who do visit our, our church gathering from time to time. So I want to ask you, what is your religion? And is your religion true or false? Now, children, when I ask you, what is your religion? You might say, well, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian. But Christianity does not work the way our ethnicity works. So it's like, oh, my mom is Buddhist and my dad is Christian, so I'm half Christian, half Buddhist. That's not how religion works. Religion has to do with our relationship with God. And so what is your religion? What's your belief about spirituality and faith? And is it a true religion or a false religion? Now, most of us are Christian who are here, so let me speak to Christians directly. If you said, well, I'm a Christian, my religion is Christianity, here's my question for you. Is your religion true or false? And when I say Christianity, I'm, look, I'm thinking about chapter 2, verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says at the very end, uh, um, as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. Holding on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, let me define Christianity for you and give you the main message of Christianity right up front. Here's the main message of Christianity. Trusting, that's glorious, or faith, trust in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That is the message of Christianity. We trust in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, here's the message of Christianity. God, is, Jesus is our glorious Lord and creator. He created you and he created me. We're made in his image. All humans are made in his image, male and female. And not only is he the creator, he is the Lord. He's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only glorious as God, but he's Lord. That means he's the Lord and judge who holds every person accountable for relating to him and reflecting him and obeying him. But because we have all disobeyed God, we've all disobeyed the Lord Jesus, he is the judge who will judge us, he will judge you for your sins. And the penalty for sins is death, eternal death in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever and ever in everlasting conscious punishment under God. He's the Lord who will judge. But he's the Lord Jesus because God the Son became a man and he took on human flesh and they named him, his, his earthly parents named him Jesus. And so Jesus, God the Son, lived as a man, fully human, lived the life that we should have lived in perfect righteousness and obedience. He died for our sins on the cross and he rose from the dead so that he is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He claimed to be Christ, the Messiah, and in his resurrection from the dead, he is verified as the Lord and Messiah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he rules over all. He is the Savior of sinners and the judge of sinners, so that everyone, every sinner who repents from their sins and repents from their goodness and repents from their religion and trusts in Jesus alone can be saved can be forgiven, 
can be restored into a relationship with God. That's what religion is, a relating to God in harmony, not just now, but forever, even after death. So God is calling you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're not a Christian, that's what he's calling you to do. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Here's the main goal of the sermon. Check to see if you're true, if you're, um, check to see if you have true religious faith in Jesus. Check to see if you have true religious faith in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, the question is still, is your religion true? If you are saying, I have religious faith in Jesus, PJ, great. Is it true faith in Jesus? Is it a true religious faith in Jesus? Or are you a fake Christian? There are fake Christians in this world. And I'm almost sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm almost sure that there are fake Christians in this room. That's a scary thought. That some who think they're Christian aren't really Christian. So, use this passage to check to see if you have true religious faith in Jesus. This isn't the only passage to check that, but this is a helpful one for that. So we have four questions here. I have four questions for you to examine if you're a doer of the word and not a hearer only. If you truly are a, if you have true religion according to what God deems true religion. Four questions to check yourself. Four questions to test yourself. Here they are. Question number one, do I control my tongue? Do I control my words? Question number two, do I care for orphans and widows in their distress? That's strange. That's, a, that's the test of true Christianity. Do I care for widows and orphans in their distress? A third test is, do I keep myself unstained from the world? Do I keep myself unstained from the world? And the last question is, do I show sinful favoritism to the rich and dismiss the poor? Do I show sinful favoritism? Okay, those are four questions. If we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only, that's a general concept last Sunday. Now James is saying, okay, here are four things to think about. Are you a doer of the word or do you just hear about these things? Okay, you guys got the four questions? Do I control my words? Do I care for orphans and widows in their distress? Do I keep myself unstained from the world? And our last one and biggest point which covers, you know, 13 verses. The other one's just two verses. The 13, last 13 verses are on the last point, do I show sinful favoritism? Let's go through these one at a time. Let's try to be quick. I'll try to be quick on the first two or three. Number one, do I control my words? Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is what? His religion is useless and he what? He deceives himself. Stop saying you're a Christian. If you don't control your words, it doesn't matter what you say. You're not a Christian. Your religion is useless. You're tricking yourself. You're deceiving yourself if you do not control your words. Now, our culture says everyone should be free to say what they say when they want to say it and say what they're truly feeling inside if they want to be authentic. Yes, honesty hurts sometimes. And if you want to be real, be really real, then say what you think when you think it. And here James says, not if you want to relate with God rightly, not if you have true religion, you can be authentic and still control your tongue. If you want authentic religion, then you need to control your words. It's been said that we speak on average 18,000 words per day. That's a 54-page book that you speak every day. One-fifth of your entire life is you talking. What are you talking about? Right? What, are, what are you talking about with your words? One-fifth of your whole life is spent talking. Now, religion and relationship with God and our spirituality, our true spirituality, should change the words we say. It should change when we speak and how we speak. We want our words to honor the Lord Jesus if we're Christian because we understand that the words of our mouths reveals the values of our hearts, right? Words guide our hearts. Words come from our hearts, and we will be held accountable for every idle word that comes from our mouths. Listen to Matthew 12, 34 and 36. Jesus says, for, for the mouth speaks from, if you know the King James Version, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The CSB says, from the, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. 
And then verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. That's scary. 18,000 words a day, one-fifth of your life is made up of words, and you will have to give an account to God on judgment day for every careless word you speak. We're called to do what seems impossible. Look at James 3, 7 through 9. We won't spend a lot of time here on the tongue because we're going to cover it in a few weeks, but look at James 3, 7 through 9. It says, Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. If you truly, if you have a true relationship with God, we need to control our words. If you don't control your words and you think you have a right relationship with God, you deceive yourself. And so the song that I learned as a kid is relevant here as, any, as anywhere else. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little mouth, what you say check to see if you have true religious faith in Jesus. Second question, do I look after orphans and widows in their distress? Do I look after distressed orphans and widows? The next verse, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, and he gives two more things here, we'll look at the first one, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So who are we to look out for? Distressed orphans and widows, right? Now, this would, this would be and could be even in our day, even in our church today, it could be single mothers with certain distresses in caring for their kids and providing for them. Or it could be kids with no parents or one parent and the child in this church needing a godly, strong, mature, masculine person or persons in their life to influence them because they don't have that in a father. It can be children who need a strong, mature, godly, feminine influence in their lives because they don't have a mother. But true religion cares about the children growing up and developing in the world and in the church. We should care about those suffering, those in distress, truly suffering due to the brokenness of this world. That's what widows, widows are widows because the spouse dies, the husband dies. That's part of the brokenness of this world. And when the spouse dies and there's a widow and the kids are orphaned, that creates distress. It creates, uh, you know, the brokenness of this world, it creates distress on the family. Sometimes the distress is, ca is caused by our own sin. And that creates systems that are hard for people to get out of. Widows lack a husband to lead and provide for and protect her and lead the family. And orphans lack a father or mother to love and lead and nurture them to healthy maturity as an adult. So what I'm saying very basically here, if you're in true religion, let me speak specifically to the men, though this applies to the women as well in their own way. Men should step up and help single mothers and children being raised without a father. There should be a special burden and encouragement to the men to feel this burden and pursue good works to those they love who are in distress. In our, in our day... In our day of um, reproductive technology, we must also understand that there are unborn babies who are even frozen, right? Frozen embryos. So now we have a duty as Christians, if you want to debate this, we're not debating this today. We talk about this every January, but we have a duty to discern when life begins and we, we have a duty to care for even the unborn and speak for the unborn in their distress and need for protection. That's another way of just applying this verse of caring for those in distress who can't protect themselves, who can't speak for themselves, who can't fight for themselves. True religion means we care for orphans and widows in their distress. This is pure and undefiled religion before God because it reflects the heart of God. That's why it says here, before God the Father in verse 27. This is tied to the godness of God and to the fatherhood of the Father. Listen to Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24. 
God says this through Moses. You must not treat any widow or fatherless child. Or you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. Why are widows and children and fatherless children in need, especially in that day? In our day, it's a little less, it's a little um, more confusing or less clear because uh, by God's grace in our culture, women can make a living for themselves, right? They can get jobs and provide. But in, in ancient cultures, if the husband dies, there is no breadwinner. There is no protection, and so they're vulnerable to other men who want to prey on them and bully them and take advantage of them. And so God says, don't mistreat the vulnerable. Don't mistreat those in distress, the widows and the fatherless. If you do, God says, I will kill you with the sword. That's what he says to Israel. In Exodus 22, listen to Psalm 68, verse 5. God in, God in his holy dwelling is a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. Do you see what the psalmist is saying about the very heart of God? God God in his holy dwelling is a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. If you believe in that God, can you not care for widows? Can you dismiss the fatherless? Not if this is your God. James is probably referring to those within the covenant community Um, before he's referring to those outside, but it applies to both orphans and widows inside the church and orphans and widows outside the church. But in Acts 6, they're caring for the widows in the church. And so there's the Greek speaking widows and the Hebrew speaking widows and the church is trying to figure out how do we care for the widows in our church? Um, So that's why if you read 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Timothy 5, Paul gives us instructions on widows in the church and how to care for them and how to work with them. Galatians 6.10 says, let's do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith, but we should do good to everyone. We should care about all widows and all orphans in their distress. 1 John 3, 14 through 18 says this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how, how, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. That's what James is saying. If you truly believe in the Messiah who died and laid down his life for you, and you have members of your covenant community, your church family in distress, then love in action and in truth. Now, let me apply this just before we move on to our third question. I just want to pause and commend you, Bethany Baptist Church. You do a great job a commendable job, an excellent job caring for each other. I'm not saying we are perfect. We certainly have people who need care and maybe feel neglected. But on the whole, just generally speaking, as a pastor from the cheap seats, looking out at emails and our Google Docs, Google Sheets, and just seeing the care list, um, we have deaconesses who have been heroic and other members of the church who have been helpfully putting in front of the church the needs of the church so that we can meet the needs. And I want to praise God for you and commend you and encourage you. You are doing a great job. And this passage is telling us that that means that you're truly Christian, that you're truly religious. But let me tell all of us here, including those who are doing a good job, we still need to keep doing it, right, and do it all the more. So let me encourage you, be ready and willing to move beyond prayer in helping others. Now, when I say beyond prayer, I'm not saying leave prayer behind. I'm saying keep praying and then move on top of praying for others, then find out other ways you can be helpful. You wouldn't let your family go in distress or your best friends go into distress without care. You would do whatever it took to care for them. And God calls you to love your neighbor as yourself inside the church and love your neighbor as yourself outside the church. And brothers and sisters, let me just say that that is a tremendous gospel opportunity for us to be light and salt to the world through caring for the fatherless and the orphans in their distress. So get to know the needs of the members of this church. Get to know them. Get to know the needs of your neighbors outside of this church. 
and care. Consider adoption and foster care. That's one way you could apply this passage. Maybe some of you should open up your homes and your lives to care for orphans very practically by providing a foster home for them for a season of, of their life before they go back to their home or to, back into the system or wherever God might be ordaining their path. And maybe try to adopt some orphans in their distress. You don't have to wait till you're done having kids to try to do this. Not if you have true religion. I'm not saying all of you need to do that. Some of you might not be called to that and don't feel false guilt about that. And if that's not you, then support the members of this church who do that. Pray for them. Ask them how they're doing. Find out how you can help meet their needs and help them parent their children, adopted or foster children. So let's be mindful of the families in distress inside and outside our church. One other practical way that we could apply this is by giving to the Benevolence Fund. I have failed to say every first Sunday of the month, Jim Armstrong is in the back, maybe because Jim Armstrong is usually in the overflow room. Um, so I haven't said this, but I used to say, Jim Armstrong's in the back with offering plate, give to the Benevolence Fund, because we do use that money to meet needs in this church. Especially members who request it, even those who might not request it, we do use the Benevolence Fund. So um, give to the Benevolence Fund. And there is a, a, a line in your church center app, I believe. If not, we will add it this week, but you could give that way. I give now through the church center app. So give, give that way to, to the Benevolence Fund. All right, so that's the second question. Do you care for orphans and widows in their distress? Third question, do I keep myself holy? Do I keep myself unstained from the world is the way I said it, right? That's what it says. Look at verse 27. True and undefiled, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself what? Keep ourselves what? Unstained from the world. Unstained from the world. James tells us in James 4, 3 through 4, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you have a pure and undefiled relationship with God, a true religion, a true relationship with God through Christ, then you're not a friend of the world in terms of worldliness and worldly things. It doesn't mean you don't love like your neighbors in the world. It means the world's values. Worldliness will become a focus in chapter 4, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it here. But let me suffice it to say, here, we must be careful to avoid sin and godlessness and keep ourselves devoted to God as our joy and as our treasure, as our highest commitment, such that we are faithful to our first love and not spiritual adulterers. Let me read to you two verses here on worldliness, two other verses on worldliness, without much exposition, just reading them. First John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, now here's what worldliness is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, earthly possessions, that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Here's another verse about keeping yourself unstained from the world. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And when it talks about discerning the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, it means discerning it such that you love to do it. You love God's will. You're transformed. Your mind is so transformed, not by this world. It's not shaped by this age, and it's God-belittling God and God-marginalizing thinking. Yeah, it's okay to have Jesus, just not in the center of your life. That's worldly thinking. But when your mind is transformed, then what God says in his word is good for you. It's delightful to you. You love God's commands. They're no longer a burden to you. So that's, a way, that's one way to test if worldliness has gotten to your heart. Are God's commands a burden to you? That's, that's an indicator. Your heart is off. Something is off. And we all get there from time to time. So just work it through with your church family. 
I love David Wells' definition of worldliness. It's the best definition I've seen. And so I quote it often. I'll quote it here again. Here's David Wells' definition of worldliness. Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes, here it is, here's the key phrase, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It's that mindset that makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Do you guys see how worldliness is like attacking our own lives in the church? It does in some ways and it's also subtle. Um, and, then, and then sometimes the church could swing the pendulum. So, for example, caring for and loving our neighbors in the LGBTQ community. Um, yes, we should love all of our neighbors as we love ourselves and care compassionately. But does that mean that uh, we affirm the mindset, beliefs, and lifestyle of, of sexual immorality? Sex outside of marriage between one, one, one man and one woman or the conception of gender? As God has created us male and female, does that mean that we don't stand for those things as good for everyone, including them? Worldliness will be like, oh, that seems strange. That seems, you know, that seems, whoa, you're an extremist. That's just, that's kind of what worldliness is, right? Worldliness, it makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And it's different here in Los Angeles than it would be in Mecca, right? In Mecca, where Islam is dominant, there's no, the worldliness of, L, of, of the LGBT, LGBT situation here is not, that's not a problem over there. What seems strange to them is uh, t uh, giving women a certain a, a dignity of equality with men, perhaps. That's what might seem strange to them over there. Do you see how, like, so it, when we're talking about worldliness, it's worldliness in your life, worldliness in our church, worldliness in our culture, in our city, in our society. That's the one that we need to be worried about, not, not the one on the other part of the world, unstained from the world and how it's getting into our lives. Worldliness keeps some from being Christian, and, uh, and worldliness uproots fake Christians. It keeps some people from becoming Christian, right? Like the rich young ruler. Remember, he had all these possessions. We talked about him last week. Jesus says, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me, and you'll have um, treasure in heaven, and you'll have eternal life. And the man walks away and does not become a Christian, does not follow Jesus, because he loves his possessions. That's worldliness keeping him from Jesus. Then there's others who say they're Christian, like the man named Demas. You guys know Demas, right? Some of you do. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul's very last letter. He talks about Demas, who was a missionary on Paul's mission and discipling and evangelism team, setting up and planting churches. That's Demas. And in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul talks about Demas to Timothy and says, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. He's abandoned the team. He's abandoned the mission. He's abandoned me, Paul. And he's abandoned Jesus. Why? He loved the present what? World. True religion, pure and undefiled religion, is to keep oneself unstained. Unstained from the world. It's more like what John Lee preached in his last sermon from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. This is what Christianity is. Hebrews 10, 34 says, You sympathize with the prisoners and you accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. You didn't care if they took your money. You didn't care if they took your possessions. You accepted that suffering because you love the other brothers. You accepted that with joy. And here, here he tells us why. Because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. You know that. You believe that. You believe that the Lord Jesus is glorious and that his riches and his inheritance is worth it. So you have joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, the confiscation of your property, because you really believe in Jesus. That's true Christianity. When the world and Jesus pit itself against each other, the Christian joyfully gives up the world again and again and again. That's pure and undefiled religion. So don't Accept worldly compromise in your life. 
keep reading your Bible and applying your Bible and discussing it with others so that you grow in your Christian life and you help other people with the subtleties of worldliness that creep into all of our lives. John 17, 17 through 19, Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth, Father. Your word is truth. He says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. They're going to be in the world to reach the world, but then also the world is going to try to get them to follow the world. So sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. The gospel is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Be sanctified in God's truth. And then we can help each other directly. We're a church family here. We need to be a church family where we can help each other directly by confronting each other in sin, challenging each other, and rebuking each other in love and humility. Have you ever wanted to rebuke someone in love because you wanted to correct them, but then you felt like you couldn't because you also sinned in some way and they know about your sin? How, have you, how many of you felt that way before? You want to confront someone, but then you feel, oh, I can't because I'm sinning too. Have you ever been told by someone when you've confronted someone, oh yeah, what about you and your sin? Have you ever been told that before? Okay, some of you have. Some of you don't want to admit it because that person might be in this room. Okay, <laughs> fine. Um, what do you do in that situation? What do you do when, when you are guilty and yet you legitimately see sin in somebody else's life and they can just point the finger back at you? What do you do? Some people say, well, I just say it anyways. And I don't care if I'm a hypocrite, I'll just say it anyways. Others might say, well, I'm not going to say anything because I also have sin in my life. I have no right. Both of those are wrong. What you need to do is first take the what? Log out of your own eye. You need to repent. You need to say, I, I need to ask God for forgiveness. I need to ask you for forgiveness if you sin against that person. Do you, do you forgive me? Do what we do here, prayer of confession. Read a Bible verse. Take, take your Sunday bulletin, read that verse, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, right after you pray a prayer of confession to the Lord. Remind yourself that God has forgiven you. Ask that person for forgiveness. Do you forgive me? Good, praise the Lord. Now, let's talk about your sin. Or maybe not now because it looks kind of like I'm manipulating the system. Let's wait one hour. And in an hour from now, let's talk about your sin. But that's gonna help that person keep worldliness from getting into their lives. You're gonna help them stay unstained from the world. Does that make sense? You guys follow me on that? So yes, let's, keep, let's help each other stay unstained from the world. Don't let your inconsistency, your sin, and your hypocrisy keep you from helping other people fight sin in their lives. Okay, I have 24 minutes left to make it to an hour, and I got the fourth point. Yes, we're here. Okay, we got it. And I, I really don't have much of a conclusion either, so that, that's helpful. So tw um, 24, okay. So the last question is 13 verses now. We got 13 verses. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The question is this. Do I show favoritism? Do I show sinful favoritism? I'll talk about it for 24 minutes now. Come back tonight, and Hebrew will talk about it in a, in a short evening sermon devotional as well from the Old Testament. So we're both talking about the same thing here. Do I show sinful favoritism? That's the question. That's what I need to check myself. Do I have true religion or not? Now, the distressed here are the poor in this section. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, don't show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus, don't show sinful favoritism. That's a generality. Now, he's going to focus on favoring the rich over the poor. But you can apply this to favoring other things. Okay, so I'm going to focus on the poor here because the passage does. But if I want to apply it to one, I can apply it more broadly than, than favoritism to the poor. And I'll, I'll do a little bit of that here and there. But I'm going to focus our, our time here on the poor. But the general command is don't show sinful favoritism in any way as you hold on to your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus the Messiah. Now, he gives four reasons why you shouldn't show, five reasons, I think. I have five reasons why you shouldn't show uh, sinful favoritism against the poor for the rich. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. For, here's, so 2 through 4 is going to give us the first reason. For if someone comes into your church gathering, so here they are, they come into BBC wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. Who here has a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes? I'm just kidding. We're not going to point you out here, but... 
Uh, if you have a gold ring and if a member comes into our gathering dressed in fine clothes or whatever else, um, you know, a, a grill in their, in their teeth or, you know, I don't know, just something that makes them <laughs> just like, you know, big chain, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever to floss and show that they're, you know, driving up in their Tesla. Just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, Tesla owners. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. All right. No. Um, no, but, but if, 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 if people who are rich come in, right, and they come into your church, verse, verse 2, with fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, they don't really have much. They don't have much to offer you. Verse 3, if you look on favor with the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, because you're, you're poor, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? Okay, that's my first reason why we shouldn't do it. And the second, the next part's my second reason, and become judges with evil thoughts. So let's leave that second part. So this first one is, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? Haven't you divided yourselves, made distinctions, discriminated? You're discriminating against the poor in favor of the rich. When you do that, we've discriminated among ourselves. We've made judgment calls on who is valuable and who is not valuable. So in this case, they're coming into church, they get the, the good seats. Now, we have a lot of empty seats, so we, have, we all have good seats. And we don't have ushers. So ushers are, you know, um, might have this temptation. But, but here, you're making distinctions, you're, making, you're discriminating among yourselves, and you made a judgment call on who is valuable, who is worthy of honorable treatment, and who is not worthy of honorable treatment. One who is worthy of good service and one who is dismissed as not worthy of good service. This goes against Jesus who teaches us to not make these distinctions. Because Jesus says, what you have done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done to, to me. That's Matthew 25, 40. What you have done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. And if that's true, then when you dismiss a poor brother or sister, who cannot give you any benefit, who are you doing that to? If you're doing it to that brother, you're doing it to whom? To Jesus. If you're doing it to that sister, who are you doing that to? To Jesus. If you dismiss a brother or sister in that way, you're, you're judging and discriminating against Jesus. Now, contrary to popular dis um, opinion, discriminating isn't always bad. There are some discriminations that are Inevitable and necessary. Now, we agree with our popular culture that some types of discrimination are bad. Racism, sexism, religious self-righteous bigotry, looking down on those with disabilities physically or mentally, etc. But not all, dis so those are, of course we agree you should not discriminate in that way. Mistreat, you should never mistreat. But I'm glad my wife discriminates against other men and doesn't treat all of them like her husband. That's a good discrimination. That's a wise and righteous and holy discrimination. Many, I wrote this, so I, I, I wrote this reflection back in 2012. It's crazy now with all the bathroom debate. I wrote this in 2012, this part. Many women are glad that men respect gender signs on bathrooms. That's more debated today, but I still think generally speaking, a lot of people love that we make distinctions even in who's going in public restrooms. We have to be glad for our cultural diversity that categorizes cultures and actually identifies and appreciates various cultures. We don't, we, we don't need to discriminate in sinful, evil ways. But when discrimination um, doesn't line up with the Bible or the truth of the Bible, then it can be bad. So we need the Bible to ultimately discern what is good versus bad distinction making or discriminating. James is telling us here about bad discrimination, obviously, sinful discrimination. And why is it bad? It's dividing the one people of God. If we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and you make distinctions and you divide uh, those who are rich and those who are poor, those who are worthy and those who are not worthy, if you make those distinctions, you're dividing the body of Christ. Whereas Paul tells us, diligently keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The church is to be united. So that's the first reason why we should not um, give in a sinful favoritism is because it makes you a judge that divides the body, divides Christ. Number two, favoritism reveals that you've been overcome by evil thoughts. Look at verse 4 again. Haven't you become, if you do this, if you do these distinctions, haven't you become judges with what? Evil with evil thoughts. So when you're overcome by favoritism, it reveals you've been overcome by evil thoughts. 
What kind of thoughts? Evil thoughts. What, what, what makes it evil? What's wrong with, I mean, what is the, what, what's wrong with giving a good chair to someone who's rich? They might give a lot of offering to the church. They could. They could give a lot of offering to our church. Our church has financial needs. We need to renovate this auditorium. Make a little bit more space for more people as the church grows. It might be good to show some favoritism, wise favoritism, and not get on the bad side of the rich, especially if they're generous and they're giving to the church. Well, this favoritism reveals self-centeredness. Why were the Christians treating the rich better than the poor? What were they hoping to get out of it? What was the motive or evil thought? It's at the end of the day that they want some sort of selfish or self-centered, God-marginalizing payback, right? They want something, they want to benefit. If I, if I get on the good side of this rich person or this person I want their favor, then they can make me feel good by giving money or even by just liking me. I want this person to like me because when they like me, it, feel, it makes me feel better. When that person likes me, I don't really care if that person likes me because I don't have any favor towards that person. Their opinion of me doesn't matter. But this person's opinion, that opinion really matters. And just for them liking me, for giving them the good seat, that makes me feel good. And that's worth it. And what James is saying is that is an evil thought. That's evil. That you want that person's approval or affirmation of you and you're dismissing your other brother or sister. That's evil because it's self-centered. It's what you want to get out of it in a way that marginalizes God. In this instance, it might be financial benefit with poor and rich, but it'll, it could also be moving up in social circles. This is why we are tempted to uh, name drop, right? Why do we want to name drop and, and talk about the people we know and, and who we're associated with? We want other people to raise their esteem of us. We want others to know who we are and who we hang out with because we want to impress other people. So we judge and show favoritism for different self-centered ends. But the selfish benefactor is always the same. Me, or you, ourselves. We may show favoritism toward the rich, but not just the rich. We may show favoritism to those we think are attractive, those who are popular, those who are influential, those who are young, those who are old, those who are cool, those who are educated, those who are well-dressed, those who are successful, those who are artistic, those who are smart, those who are whatever. It may be a financial, social, relational, or emotional a desire you're trying to get out of it, a benefit you're trying to get out of it, but you favor some over others without godly warrant because you think they can give you something to exalt you and wrongly satisfy your flesh in a way that the other person can't. And that belittles God. That's an evil thought. This is in direct contrast to believing that Jesus Christ is glorious. When we don't believe that God is glorious and worthy of our desire and fear, then we fear other humans and want their approval in a distorted way. We see the rich people and we feel their need of approval and favor. So you know what we need to not fear man? We need to fear the Lord. That's the solution. We need to fear the Lord. This can be done by meditating on his glory, his holiness, his power, his fame, his beauty, his creativity. He is the famous, powerful, rich, glorious one. So meditate on who God is through his word as you read and hear it. Pay attention to the prayers of praise. Our sister Becca led us through a wonderful prayer of praise, just thinking about God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Meditate on who God is. Or try what Tim Chester says. Tim Chester wrote, Whenever you see someone you fear, whose approval you crave, imagine God right next to him or her. Which of them is more glorious, more majestic, more holy, more beautiful, more threatening, more loving. Whose approval really matters to you? Just imagine God right beside that person. That's helpful. Tim Chester writes, the fear of God is liberating. We're not enslaved by people. We don't serve them for what they can give us in return, approval, affection, security, or whatever. By submitting to Christ's lordship, we're free to serve others in love. Third reason why we need to not show favoritism is because you go against the heart of God. Why? Look at verse 5. Listen, my brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. So why should you care for the poor? Because you go against God's heart. Who does God choose? According to verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. Who does God choose? Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? 
God chose, God chooses the poor. So if you favor the rich over the poor when they come into your gathering and show favoritism there, you're going against the heart of God. God chooses the poor in this world. This doesn't mean that the rich are never chosen. And in many ways, as I'm looking on this room, just in terms of world population or even just in America, most of us are generally middle class or rich, okay? This doesn't mean that God, that, that the rich are never chosen, but not as many of the rich are chosen as the poor, according to 1 Corinthians 1.26. Not many of you were rich, he says, in 1 Corinthians 1.26. Maybe speaking specifically to the church at Corinth, but I would just say even say globally, Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to what? To enter the kingdom of heaven, right? It's impossible for everyone, but riches gives a special obstacle. If we can make distinctions of degrees of impossibility. God chooses the poor, so when we show favoritism toward the rich, we dishonor God who honors the poor. Fourth reason, continue right there in verse 6. Yet you have dishonored the poor, verse 6. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? The fourth reason why you need to not show sinful favoritism is because you make light of the rich of the rich's sin against God. When the rich ones sin against God, you make light of their sin when you favor them over the poor. According to this passage, the rich oppress. The rich use the system. The rich, more importantly, or maybe more explicitly, they blaspheme God. And you would favor them over the poor that God has chosen? You would favor them over the poor that God has chosen? Favoring the rich over the poor doesn't line up with the way the rich treated Christians in James' day. If you look at verse 6, even if you go to chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, and we'll look at that next time or in the future, they drag people into courts. James isn't encouraging revenge on the rich here. He's simply pointing out it's irrational. It doesn't make sense to favor the rich over the poor in light of the characteristics of how they interact with Christians. Favoring the rich doesn't line up with how they treat God. They blaspheme his name. They mock his name. They mock Jesus and his church. They make plans presuming that they don't need God. That's what James 4, 13 through 17 says. You who say tomorrow we're going to do this and tomorrow we're going to do that, why do you boast in yourself? Because you got the resources? You shouldn't say tomorrow we'll do this or that. You should say if the Lord wills, we should do this or that because your life is a vapor. You don't even know if you're going to live tomorrow. The fifth reason and the biggest one. So we're doing good on time here. So this is it, okay? The fifth reason and the biggest one, uh, most theological and just maybe the most uh, deep reason why we shouldn't show sinful favoritism is reason number five. And that's verses eight through 13. Don't show sinful favoritism because if you do, you are a lawbreaker. You're a lawbreaker. Look at verse eight. Indeed... If you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism and commit sin and are convicted by, uh, if, if, you, if, you, if, however, you show favoritism, if you do show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point, you keep all of the law. In the Old Covenant, the 613 commands, right? If you keep all of the law of God and stumble at one point, what does James say? If you stumble at one point, you are guilty of breaking what? All, all of it. You're guilty of breaking it all. Why? For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. So if you, commit, if you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker because you've broken the law. So why should you not show sinful favoritism? Well, the law says love your neighbor as yourself. If I love all of my neighbors as myself, if I love the poor neighbor as I love myself, and I love the rich neighbor as I love myself, if I love the powerful neighbor as I love myself, if I love the vulnerable, weak um, neighbor as I love myself, if, I, if I'm loving all of them as myself, am I going to make dis distinctions? If I'm loving all of them like myself? No, because the standard of my love for them is what? My love for myself. So it's going to be consistent. And that's the second greatest commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you just do that, you're not going to show sinful favoritism. But when you don't do that, you break the law. And when you break the law, even at one point, you are guilty of breaking all of it 
because you're a lawbreaker now. Because you're a lawbreaker now. Why are you guilty of breaking all of it? And why, are you, yeah, why would we be guilty of breaking it all? Because it's not about how many commands you break. It's that the law is a unit reflecting the unity and holiness of God. And that's what you're breaking. You're, 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 you're breaking God's holiness. You're, you're doing violence to God's holiness. You're violating God when you break God's law. And that's the bigger point. You're a lawbreaker. So there's no sin that's small. No sin is small because it violates God's law and makes you a lawbreaker. No sin is small. No sin is a small sin if it violates the God whose holiness is big, whose holiness is infinite. So I hope you see the logic of James' point here. We're guilty of sin. We're guilty of breaking all of God's law when we sin. And that's why we deserve damnation and hell. That's why we need salvation. And Jesus didn't show favoritism. That's why people trusted him. Jesus wasn't partial to others. He cared for the spiritually poor. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. But then Jesus also says something. Okay, go to, go to Luke chapter, if you want to, Luke chapter 6. In Luke 14, Jesus said, my mission has come to preach the good news to the poor. That's Luke 14, but look at Luke 6. So I quoted for you guys earlier, um, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice I said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But when you look at Luke 6, Luke does something different here. Listen to God's word here, Luke 6, 20. This is Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Then looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you who are what? Poor because the kingdom of God is yours. He doesn't say poor in spirit. spirit. He just says, blessed are you who are poor. And then you get to verse 24, because there's blessings and woes. Then he says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Luke doesn't make the nuance that Matthew makes. It could be, Jesus could have taught this several ways, just like preaching the same sermon elsewhere, and it's always a little bit different. But the point here is, Luke doesn't qualify it. Blessed are you who are poor. Because the kingdom of God is yours. Woe to you who are rich. Because you already received your comfort. There's a, a heart for the poor that God has and Jesus has. That we Christians are also to have. I wish I could go further into detail and just talk about the poor. Maybe we should just do a Sunday night on a theology of poverty and riches and how to care for the poor as a church. But Jesus has given us that future inheritance. Now, when I look at my own life, before I get to the last verse, let's go back to James here. James 2, 12 and 13, the last two verses. Before we get there, let me just ask some questions out loud. As I was thinking about, as I think about my own life and think about where do I fail to love the poor faithfully? And love my neighbor as myself. As I think about the way I don't love the transient neighbors, the way I love myself, these things came to my mind. So here are questions I ask myself, I want you to ask yourself. Do I know their names? Do I know their names? Do I want to know their names? And do I want them to know my name? Or do I not? Do I look them in the eye and see their dignity and worth? made in God's image? Or do I avoid eye contact? Why? It's uncomfortable to look them in the eye sometimes, right? That's a good discomfort. Because what you'll see there is value. Humanity. Would I make space for them at my table? Do I want to get to know their story? Will I tell them God's message? Am I burdened for lasting solutions for them? Do I have a sense of urgency? Or am I comfortable with a habitual sense of procrastination? Do we love the poor? Now, let's go to these last two verses here to close. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. If you do this, you're not going to show favoritism, right? Okay? Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. 
No, um, again, there's still reason five about not being a lawbreaker because we have the law of freedom here. So speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Why is it called the law of freedom? The law of freedom means that you've been freed. Freed from what? It means you've been shown mercy in your judgment, and so now you can be merciful to those who will benefit, those who cannot benefit you as much as others. Um, those who will not benefit you with earthly goods and services. The law of freedom means you are free from a merciless judgment based on merit. On the basis of merit, we all fall short and are doomed. The law of freedom, God's word to us in Christ, grants us freedom through giving us the wisdom and faith and love to believe that these laws are good and coming from a good God. And so God frees our hearts from disobedience and carelessness. He frees us to love his law, which means that we're free now to obey. It's a law of freedom. And I want to focus on, this, on verse 13 lastly here. When I say this law of freedom grants us freedom from merciless judgment, it comes in a specific way. Look at verse 13. Judgment, if you, if you judge people without mercy just based on their merit, their resources, that's without mercy. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. If you judge people without mercy, you're going to be judged without mercy. It shows you're not really a Christian. But here's the good news. Here's another kind of picture of the gospel in four words. The last four words of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's the gospel. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This triumphant mercy... Mercy triumphs over judgment because Christ's life triumphs over death. Mercy triumphs over judgment because God's forgiveness and justification of us triumphs over our just condemnation that we deserve. We're sinners who deserve damnation, but God's mercy has triumphed over judgment for us at the cross. In our forgiveness, in Christ dying for us, and in Christ's resurrection, mercy triumphed over judgment. And because of that, that triumphant mercy teaches us, it teaches us the word of Christ, and it teaches us that we don't deserve this mercy. Judge Jesus counts us with him and not against him on the basis of his merit and his mercy and not our merit and our strength and our goodness and our worthiness. We are free. From the, because of the law of freedom, the law of Christ, the word of Christ, we are free from judgment. We are free from damnation. We are free from death. We are free from sin. We are free from the chains of having to favor others so that they would give us the benefits we want. We're free. Mercy has freed us from all of it. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. And because we're free in Christ, we are now free to treat others without having to try to get something from them for us selfishly. We're now free to judge them on the basis of mercy and not merit because mercy has triumphed over judgment and merit for us. So if you are judged by this gospel mercy when you were spiritually poor and helpless and hopeless, why would you favor the materially rich? Why would you abandon loving others as yourself? Why would we disobey the law of God and become a lawbreaker? Why would we go against God's heart for the poor? To close, true religion means, again, the four things by summary, true religion means knowing and trusting and communing with God in such a true and pure and undefiled way that it means that we guard our words. It means that we care for orphans and widows in their distress. It means that we keep ourselves unstained from the world. It means that we don't show sinful favoritism to get from others rather than to love them as we love ourselves. In other words, true religion means enjoying and reflecting God. So, with my Bible closed now, I'm going to read to you, to close, I'm just going to read this passage and we're going to pray. But this passage encapsulates the heart of God and the love of God for the poor that we should be reflecting in our own lives. So if you want to turn there, you can, but you can just write this down. Deuteronomy 10, 14 to 22. Listen to me as I read to you Deuteronomy 10, 14 to 22, and then we'll pray. Listen to God's glory here and his care. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to Yahweh your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet Yahweh had his heart set on your ancestors and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. 
just like God chose us according to James 1.18. He chose you. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Why? For Yahweh your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality, no favoritism, and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You are to fear Yahweh your God and worship him, remain faithful to him, and take oaths in his name. He is your praise. And he is your God who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works you have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now Yahweh your God has made you numerous like the stars in the sky. True religion is worshiping and enjoying that God. Father in heaven, we pray that you would test our hearts, check our hearts, and draw us closer to you to know and enjoy and reflect your heart. True religion is knowing and enjoying you, Lord, and that's what we want to do. That's what we hope to do. We ask for your help to do it as a church family. Hide your words in our heart that we would not sin against you. Soften our hearts. Show us specific ways we are not doing your word, but only hearing it. And give us life and strength and power to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.